Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today we're speaking with Dora Varga, who is Senior Lecturer in Medical Humanities at the University of Exeter. Dora is the author of Polio Across the Iron Curtain, Hungary's Cold War with an Epidemic. Dora, hello. Thank you very much for joining us to talk about your book. Thank you so much for having me. Dora, many of us here in the United States are familiar with the history of polio and the polio vaccine from the U.S. point of view. Why is it important or interesting to look at a place like Hungary, which for many Americans is on the periphery of their awareness, especially in terms of polio epidemic and polio vaccine? I'm aware that polio is mostly known as an American story, and not just in the U.S., but pretty much around the world. That's where the vaccines were developed at most of their stages, at least. And there's a very strong story going on there with Roosevelt and the March of Dimes, which are very famous elements of the history of polio. However, if we look beyond the United States, it turns out that polio was always considered to be a worldwide problem, and not necessarily at a pandemic level, but always considered as a global issue. So I began to think about that and how we could broaden that story. And if we look beyond the confines of the United States, what changes in that story? If there's anything else going on that we weren't aware of, what happens if we look beyond the national boundaries? That was one of the things that got me interested, this global aspect of it and how the contemporaries thought about it as a global problem. The other thing is that when most of the vaccine development is happening and when you have the biggest uh, epidemic waves, it's also in the unfolding Cold War. And the Cold War, of course, was a global phenomenon itself. And thinking of these two things together, I arrived to Hungary partly because it gives us a very different view of the Cold War itself. And it gives us a different view of a disease that we often look at from some kind of center that we perceive as a center of knowledge production, as a center of scientific practice, as an economic center, as a political center like the United States. But there are other stories to discover and other ways of thinking about disease that I think permit us to do that if we look at seemingly peripheral places. And I say seemingly peripheral because, as it turns out, these places are not so peripheral after all. So can you describe the situation in Hungary after World War II leading into the outbreak of polio in the early 1950s? Can you set the scene for us? So Hungary came out of the war pretty badly. It was on the losing side. It uh, was fighting alongside with Nazi Germany. And towards the end of the war, it tried to jump out of the war, so to speak, and to break away from that alliance. But that was not possible. It's a complicated story. But anyway, that is how the war ended for Hungary with an invasion of the Soviet Red Army. So Hungary came out of the war on the wrong side and with a lot of destruction. About a million people from Hungary were killed in the Holocaust. There was a huge devastation of loss of lives during the fighting as well and through the invasion and a a huge loss of territory and a huge loss of infrastructure, a lot of bombings. The front was moving through the country. 
And towards the late 40s, the second half of the 40s, the political scenery changed quite quickly. There was an attempt at setting up a democratic political system that was soon hijacked by the Communist Party, who sort of sliced away the opposition. They called it salami tactics. As they were Hungarians, it had to be something connected with salami and took over the political leadership with Soviet backup. And so this is sort of a quite conventional communist takeover in Hungary that was happening in a lot of the Eastern European states at the time. With the unfolding Cold War, Hungary became part of the communist East. In the early 50s, before the major epidemic broke out in Hungary, there was a very strong Stalinist push in terms of organizing the country, a lot of forced nationalizations, forced relocation of certain unwanted elements from urban areas to rural ones, and a lot of controversial and very harsh tactics from the government that was quite oppressive. So this is not a very happy time in the country at that point. And this is going on still in 1952 when you have the first bigger outbreak of polio. Was the urgency of polio as a national issue a purely biological and clinical issue, or were there other issues that pushed polio to the fore on the national stage in Hungary? Well, the interesting thing is that in Hungary, as I think in a lot of other places, the epidemics and the outbreaks cannot be completely divorced, if they can be divorced at all, from the political processes and from what's going on in society. The importance of polio came sort of gradually in Hungary in the 50s. In the 1950s in Hungary, we have a Stalinist regime until roughly 53, slight attempts at some sort of reform until 56. We have a big revolution there, which became a very iconic event in the Cold War internationally, the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, and then a backlash against that revolution towards the late 50s. And polio, interestingly, follows a bit this chronology, but also interacts in it in very interesting ways. It becomes increasingly important as the epidemics become increasingly bigger. So that's one of the issues. But it also seems to go against the really fundamental values and priorities of this new communist state. And that is the rebuilding of a society after a devastating war. So Children and the production of children and healthy children are at the forefront of the health policies of the regime. There is a, a very strong emphasis on physical work, factories, the steel industry. So that requires a lot of strong, muscular bodies. You can see this everywhere around murals and statues and all kinds of representations and propaganda materials at the time. If you try to think of uh, communist imagery, I'm sure you'll be familiar with these really muscular men and women carrying flags or a hammer and sickle or any combination thereof. So you have this kind of rebuilding of the country, you have a particular economic agenda and particular ideological agenda playing, and polio just cuts right into the veins of all of these. It's causing disability, it attacks mainly children, it's everywhere, it attacks the children of party members and party leaders as much as workers and peasants and kulaks and the enemies of the state. It's very 
omnipresent in a way. So that also played into making it more important. And then on top of this importance, you have this changing political landscape in which the regime at some point has to prove that it can combat this disease, that it can provide safety for its citizens. There's a strong paternalistic relationship between the citizens and the state, a very strong sense or at least a perceived sense of the community and the collective working towards a goal. And in return, the state is providing all kinds of services healthcare for one of them and providing the the safety of the citizens. So the state at some point has to prove that it's able to do this. And from an international perspective, how did Hungarians deal with the constraints and the politics of the Cold War situation? The fluctuating Cold War played a very interesting and surprising role in this not in ways necessarily that we would expect. After the 1956 revolution, the Hungarian government was a sort of paria in the eye of the international community, borderline legitimate. There was a UN committee set up to investigate the Hungarian and Soviet intervention into the revolution. So it was a very fragile time. Also, internally in Hungary, there was a very hostile engagement with Western Europe, always being presented as an enemy, uh, as the imperial rotten West. So this is sort of the backdrop, but then you throw epidemic into the mix that crosses borders and doesn't respect these dividing lines, doesn't respect the Iron Curtain, doesn't respect border checks and uh, bans on travel and bans on, on information and propaganda. And you have very interesting things happening. For instance, right after the revolution, when you have really oppressive policies in place towards uh, people who took any part in the revolution, and when about 200,000 people escaped Hungary, escaped the country, escaped Eastern Europe during the revolution, partly because they either took part in it or they saw moments of opportunity to leave. These were really considered to be not outright enemies, but really not friendly to the Hungarian communist project. Yet in 1957, in times of a big epidemic, you have two surprising things going on. A West German pilot being celebrated in the bringing vaccine to Hungarian mothers and being greeted by the health minister and members of government at the airport. And you have the government calling on the people who had just left the country in protest of the regime itself, calling on those people to send vaccine to their remaining families in Hungary. And the Hungarian state will do everything to speed those packages along. These packages are usually either not let into the country or are opened and uh, stalled or being raided uh, at the point of entering the country. But this time, there's an exception to that. They will speed it along so that more and more vaccine can come in. So it overrides these political agendas, overrides these political priorities in very surprising ways. You talk in your book about these efforts to import the first vaccine, the Salk vaccine, into Hungary, either by the government or by family members. Can you talk about the experience of using the Salk vaccine in Hungary, how effective it was, how individuals of the government reacted to the efficacy or lack of efficacy of the Salk vaccine? The story that I just mentioned with the West German pilot and the families is part of the import of the Salk vaccine. 
And it has a very interesting history in Hungary as well. Usually when we think of the Salk vaccine, it's really considered to be one of the major medical discoveries of the 20th century as a real game changer, not only in the history of polio, but overall in 20th century medical history more broadly. Yet in Hungary, it plays out a bit differently. First of all, the state organizes the import and mass vaccinations with the vaccine. However, this is very similarly to any other epidemic and what we have right now with certain materials being in shortage when everybody wants the same thing across the globe, there are sometimes problems with the supply. So the Hungarian state is trying to manage that. They have a limited access to hard currency for which they can buy vaccines from Canada and the United States. On the one hand, and on the other, there's a global shortage of the Salk vaccine. In 1957, there's a lot of epidemic waves going on everywhere in the world, and the vaccine is in high demand. And the government tries to import as much vaccine as it can, but it seems that it might not be enough, especially retrospectively. Two years later, it turns out that the vaccine might not have achieved the hope uh, efficacy because there's another enormous outbreak of polio just two years after the vaccination start. Various people are thinking about what went wrong in 1957. Why do you have this renewed big epidemic when the population should have been covered by the vaccine? And there are multiple explanations for it. And the explanations change over time in medical journals, in the newspapers, and the accounts of people who lived through this. One of the theories is that because there was not enough vaccine available, the Hungarian government decided that they will not give the full dose. So this is the rumor basically that's going on. They decided to cut the dose in half, and they were basically playing with the lives of Hungarian citizens. So the, a lot of Hungarian citizens are blaming the state for not providing enough vaccine. Where this rumor comes from is that there are multiple ways at the time of administering the vaccine, either into the muscle, where you need much more vaccine, so you need one milliliter of the vaccine to be injected into the muscle. Or there's another way that they develop in Denmark where the vaccine is injected under the skin, and you need roughly one third of the amount of the intramuscular one, the, the one that goes into the muscle. So Hungarians decide to go with the lower dosage method. And there is a debate if they chose the dosage to be too low or if this is the reason why the vaccine was not working. So there is blame from the citizens to the state. There is a sort of uncertainty in the medical community if this is the right method. So this is also debated at the time. It creates some uncertainty that is not helping. The government accuses the citizens of not doing their job. So according to them, they procured the vaccine. They moved mountains to get the vaccine to the Hungarian people. Yet the Hungarian people did not comply with the calls to come and get vaccinated. This vaccine needs three doses to be effective, and people were just not complying. They didn't come to get their vaccine. They were not dedicated to the collective effort enough, and it is their fault, in essence. It's very difficult to get numbers of exactly how many people were vaccinated, partly because we imagine these authoritarian regimes or dictatorships to be extremely efficient in reaching everyone and everyone falls in line, but people were losing their vaccination cards. 
doctors were forgetting to phone things in and reporting a disease. They lost their files. Records went missing. Some doctors or some authorities were overzealous in reporting. So they reported that they actually vaccinated 110% of the population. That was one of my favorite finds because, of course, you, as a stachanovite, you always, always go above the assigned work. You always go above and beyond and you do 110%. So that's uh, what they did. It's impossible to know exactly you know, how many people they actually reached. So there is an uncertainty about that and there is blame going on between these different actors. The scientists and the doctors are also blaming the government in a way and blaming the technology that the needles that they're given and the syringes that they're given, they're leaking. It's impossible to know exactly if they got in the right dose or not. They're struggling with the materials provided and thus they're trying to push back against any kind of blame from their part. So there's this figuring out of who is to blame, whose fault is it? And the conversation in the meantime then slowly transforms from particular personal fault of either the state, the government, either the doctors or either the parents. And there's investigations going into the actual efficacy of the vaccine. Is it actually the fault of the vaccine? Maybe the Hungarian state and government and society and medical establishment, maybe they did everything right. Maybe it's the vaccine that is not working. And this is what they actually stick with in the end. The vaccine, when it arrived with this West German pilot as the savior of the Hungarian children, two years later is transformed to an imperfect technology that is really much better than nothing, but it's not good enough. And by the time this transformation goes through, it emerges uh, in parallel, and this is not a coincidence, that there is another vaccine. There's another vaccine being developed in the background that is much better and that is much more efficient. At least this is what the Hungarians are arguing for. Could you tell us the difference between these two vaccines? And in your book, you describe a whole Soviet and Eastern European history of the second vaccine that may be unfamiliar to those of us who know the American perspective. Could you fill us in on that East European perspective of the development of the new vaccine? The new vaccine is actually the vaccine that is being used today. A version of that vaccine is used today in the global polio eradication program. This is the Sabin vaccine. It's an oral polio vaccine and it's a live vaccine. It's very different from the other one, the Salk vaccine, which works with dead viruses. Basically, they kill the viruses with formaldehyde and inject that into the bodies of the vaccinees. The other vaccine is a live vaccine. So it contains viruses that have been made weaker. It's called an attenuated vaccine, made weaker so that they don't make the people sick. They don't invoke paralysis or any kind of illness, but they're strong enough that they will elicit an immune response. So this is the major difference between the two. When Salk's vaccine comes out, and this is more familiar to maybe American listeners or people more familiar with the American story, Albert Sabin is already working on his live vaccine. But after the Salk vaccine is available and after an incident caused by a faulty batch of, of Salk vaccine, 
where several children and their families get sick from the vaccine uh, accidentally, there is no possibility for Sabin to trial his vaccine in the United States. So he does something that is quite unique in the history of the Cold War. He teams up with a Russian scientist. The Russian scientist is Mikhail Chumakov, who had been in the United States a couple of years earlier to study the making of the Salk vaccine and who met with Albert Sabin as part of that tour. And they form a professional relationship and friendship uh, after that. So basically, we're in the phase of the vaccine development at this point where it's ready to be tested on people. It needs a big field trial to prove that it's efficient and to prove that it's safe. And so this is what Chumakov and Sabin do together. So this is really not the point where the vaccine is done and ready to go and it can be rolled out. All it needs is this trial. There's still work going on in this. And this trial is a big part of it. The Soviet Union organizes an enormous trial involving over 15 million people who are immunized with the new Sabin vaccine. And this becomes one of the biggest field trials conducted in human history, at least definitely at that time. And it's not only going on in the Soviet Union, just as the trial is wrapping up, there are smaller trials, scientifically equally important trials going on in Eastern Europe. There's one in Czechoslovakia, there's one in Hungary, and pretty soon small trials are popping up in almost every Eastern European country. But the Hungarian and the Czechoslovak trials become important reference points. They are very early in the game. And you might wonder, how does this happen? How does an American scientist waltz behind the Iron Curtain and immunizes people left and right with an experimental vaccine? And Sabin is not the only one. There's Hilary Koprowski, another virologist who is also working on his own life vaccine, who immunizes 7 million people in Poland. Both scientists have Eastern European roots in their families, so that definitely plays an important part. But one could argue that makes uh, them even more suspect for this project. And it's a difficult question to answer of how this happens. The main important thing is that A, Sabin and Kaprowski himself as well, but focusing on Sabin, he had an extensive scientific network. And these scientific networks were based on longer term ties that reached back to before the Cold War and the scientific networks kept going and cut across political dividing lines, which made collaborations possible. But of course, it was very important that this was a disease that was causing a problem for everyone, regardless of their political system, regardless of the ideology. And everyone was developing knowledge about it together. So it's a relatively new virus in the 40s and 50s, relatively new technologies, these new vaccines that are being developed. And this can only be done collaboratively. So that kind of international aspect becomes strong because everybody's struggling with the same epidemic. Everybody's struggling with the same disease and everybody's struggling with the same uncertain scientific knowledge about it. So this gives this base for this very unique cooperation but of course, this doesn't mean that the politics of this uh, is, is, is non-existent or is not there. The Cold War doesn't just evaporate because there's an epidemic. Sometimes it actually brings out these divisions even more. 
And that happens with trusting the results of the trial. Some American doctors are wondering and scientists are wondering if we can trust at all what the Russians say, because obviously we know them to lie all the time and there is a Cold War going on. It's very difficult to develop trust in a technology that can harm the children of our own nation, ultimately. And this is where the WHO steps in as an outside international power that can validate the results, that can step up as a standardizer of the technology, that can set directions in how to prevent polio. And they send Dorothy Horstman, who's a virologist at Yale, to validate the results. It brings her a lot of status, but we know from archival evidence that she was proposed to go to validate this, and then the WHO got on board to be involved in this process. So it's using the WHO on the one hand to step over these Cold War divides, and the WHO taking the opportunity and initiative to act as this impartial motivator. We might think that the Salk vaccine lost out to the Sabin vaccine in the case of Hungary, because the Salk vaccine was coming from the West and the Sabin vaccine was coming from the East. But again, it's not that simple. The Salk vaccine was celebrated when it came and the Sabin vaccine was actually looked at with some doubts. Even in the Soviet Union, there were accounts of conspiracy theories that, uh, that the Sabin vaccine is being tested in the Soviet Union and not in the United States because Really, in essence, it's some kind of biological weapon that will undermine Soviet society. This is why the Americans are not testing it on themselves. It's not enough of an explanation, this East-West divide, because the same argument could be turned over very quickly. So you've described the post-war situation in Hungary and some of the experience with polio and the two vaccines. And in much more detail, you describe it in your book. Can you tell us something about how the experience transformed Hungary and what their post-epidemic experience was? Hungary became one of the first countries to eliminate polio. So it happened very early on. 1959 is the last big outbreak. Basically, after 1963, there are not many cases. There's one very small cluster outbreak and an imported case, but basically epidemics disappear very quickly from Hungary after the Sabin vaccine is introduced. And this is celebrated as a great triumph of communism and a great uh, triumph of the East over the West, who are still struggling with the disease. One of the arguments is that Hungary and Eastern Europe and the Cold War East did not hesitate to get rid of the big sulk supplies and production and switch quickly to a better, so-called better vaccine, while the West is governed by capitalism and greed, and they're sacrificing the lives of their citizens for the sake of profit. So this was one of the ways in which polio got incorporated into conventional Cold War narratives. And what happens in Hungary then is the disease disappears as an epidemic threat. And suddenly the Hungarian government is not interested in polio anymore. It withdraws all the funding and priorities that it has attached to it. And we never really hear about it much anymore. However, 
polio causes, in a number of cases, it causes permanent disability. And there are thousands and thousands of people living with disability at this time in Hungary. So polio for them and their families and friends, which makes them quite a significant part of society, is not over with the end of the outbreaks. However, they lose a lot of support. The only dedicated hospital for polio transformed into a general children's hospital. Patients are let go and are asked to continue their treatment, their post-operative treatments and physical therapies at home, wherever they're from in the country under the direction of their GP. But records get lost and people have more and more limited access to specialists and to specialist equipment, braces and orthopedic shoes and so on and so forth. So this kind of ending of the epidemics has a very strong and probable effect on a high number of people, the people who have been treating polio patients and also former polio patients themselves who keep living with polio for the rest of their lives. And this got me thinking about how we think in generally about epidemics of when epidemics end and who gets to say that polio has ended? Does the Hungarian government get to say that this disease is no more? But then who is left out of this? What happens to the people who are still living with this disease? So this is, I think, an important thing to consider more generally as we think of epidemics in a historical context, but also more generally about epidemic outbreaks. Terrific. Dora, thank you very much for taking some time to chat with us about your work. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and I'm Jessica Linker, a program coordinator at the Consortium. You can find other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect to our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.